G'day everyone and welcome to the Spud Fit Podcast episode 12. Episode 12 episodes done now. Pretty amazing to me. This podcast is brought to you by me. I don't have any sponsor. Actually, I do have one sponsor coming up in a sec. But anyway, this podcast is brought to you by me, Spud Fit. I ate nothing but potatoes for all of 2016. I lost a lot of weight. I fixed my depression and a number of other health issues. And you can find out more at www.spudfit.com. If you're interested in doing something like this for yourself, then I wrote a book for you. It's called the DIY Spud Fit Challenge, a how-to guide to doing your own Spud Fit Challenge. The first half of the book is written by me, and it's all about what to expect and uh, what's going to happen and how to do it and mindset issues and uh, a meditation on emotional eating and all sorts of tips and tricks. And the second half is written by my wife and photos by my wife, Mandy Van Zanen, who also did the dis- that recorded, made the jingle for this show, uh, which you'll hear in a minute. Uh, so anyway, you can find that on Amazon or on our website. Just search for the DIY Spud Fit Challenge. Make sure it's written by me. There are a couple of imposter books out there written by other people. Uh, if you like what I'm doing, then please share it. Subscribe on iTunes. Leave me a nice review. Uh, and, and most importantly, share it with your friends. That's really, really helpful. We do have one little sponsor, The Daiquiri. Go to thedaiquiri.com, T-H-E-D-A-K-E-R-Y.com. What is The Daiquiri? Well, it's, again, my wife's business. Uh, Mandy started this uh, tracksuit pants, track pants, sweatpants. In Australia, we have slang for them called tracky dacks. And these are the world's most comfy tracky dacks. They're stylish, they're artful, they're the world's most comfy works of art. They're made from organic cotton and bamboo, and they're super comfy. They're, uh, and they're designed by artists with uh, amazing uh, uh, designs on them. <laughs> and and they're, uh, they're designed, made, and hand-screen printed right here in Australia, and, uh, and they're beautiful and comfy and luxurious. So, get yourself a pair of tracky dacks, of dacks, from thedaiquiri.com. Today's guest is Dr. Doug Lyle. This is a really special one for me. Uh, This was a really eye-opening conversation. A lot of things Dr. Lyle uh, said really hit home to me. It really made a lot of sense and it made me rethink uh, and uh, re-understand really uh, a lot of different things about me and my life and my behavior and uh, yeah all, all sorts I, I was a really really amazing conversation I had a great time talking to Doug I was lucky to meet Doug on a couple of occasions once at uh, at Dr. McDougall's advanced study weekend and then another time at uh, Chef AJ's healthy taste of Sacramento event and uh, both times he was uh, a true gentleman and a, and a really great guy and, uh, and I was really lucky to be able to sit down with him for some uh, one-on-one time in this podcast. Doug, you can find him, more information about him and his work at a website called Esteem Dynamics and he also works at True North Health Centre which uh, you would know from the previous episode with uh, Alan Goldhammer, those two grew up as best mates and he also wrote with Alan Goldhammer, the book, a book called The Pleasure Trap. Now, I made a video early last year called My Argument Against Moderation on YouTube. 
And uh, I, it was basically me talking about how I don't believe moderation's a good idea. And after that, I got lots of emails and messages and comments from people saying I should read The Pleasure Trap. So I got The Pleasure Trap and naturally I turned straight to uh, the chapter titled Myths on Moderation. And that is still my favorite chapter of any book I've ever read. And, uh, and yeah, so it was a pleasure to be able to talk to both of the authors now. Last week, Alan Goldhammer and this week, Doug Lyle. Um, and we expand on those ideas of moderation. We get into ego, the ego trap, and, uh, and a whole heap of other ideas about um, uh, what, uh, how evolutionary psychology shapes our behaviors and our lives. Uh, like I said, really, really enjoyed this conversation. It's, uh, it was a real treat and um, yeah, really has changed the way I look at the world. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. On to the show. All right, here we are with uh, Dr. Doug Lyle. Uh, we're at, in our friend Linda's place, and there's a bit of a party going on in the background. So we might have uh, you might hear some other sound issues, and uh, we'll see what happens. Anyway, we do what we can. So uh, welcome, Dr. Lyle. Thank you. Pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a real honor to be able to have this time to sit down and chat with you. Uh, so start things off the question i ask all of my guests to answer you can answer it in a complex way or a simple way but yeah. who is dr doug lyle oh <laughs> well i'm uh, i'm a psychologist and i have a my best friend from childhood was dr alan goldhammer who yeah. uh, is the the head of uh, true north health center in santa rosa california where yeah. We specialize in water-only fasting. Yeah, and he's so, the, actually the last person I spoke to oh. for this. I don't know if I think I'll probably just air the interviews in order, but yes, yeah, I spoke to him on Tuesday morning. So, oh, terrific! And, and it's Sunday now for the people listening. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So we uh, we started out as kids uh, in California, just doing our own doing our own California thing, and then uh, my father actually was always uh, pretty curious about about a number of things, and he would just read books and sort of take off on a tangent for a while, usually never amounting to much. But uh, when we were in high school, he picked up uh, an interest in health. And so there were several big health books uh, in the world at that time. Adele Davis had a book called Let's Eat Right to Keep Fit. And, uh, and then my dad ran into a book called Psychodietetics, that wow. was, uh, yes, it was interesting a, name. Yes, it was a uh, the story of essentially hypoglycemia, okay. and so it blamed refined carbohydrates for all of the world's psychological ills, and he became convinced that this was you know the gospel, and so I read it, or I didn't I didn't read the whole thing, but I read a part of it enough to felt like it was very authoritative, and I was about seventeen at the time, okay. at which point I started lecturing to everybody you know inside. Yeah. It was already. <laughs> a preachy lecturer health preacher was born and uh so my friend alan of course had vegan club you got it so uh (laughs) alan had to was subjected to this and one of the interesting things about it was i had then stopped eating all all refined carbs and uh and so i did this and then alan 
of course, had to take up the challenge. And I can remember to this day, it's like it was yesterday. He called me on the phone and said, this is tougher than I thought. You know, there's yep. cookies in my mom's <laughs> cookie jar and he keeps looking at them. Yep. And uh, but Alan then uh, before too long, he became just as dedicated and then more dedicated than I am. Yeah. And because uh, he's more of a fanatical nut. And, and it's just how it is. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, he uh, so we then began this journey and then he sort of took this on uh, more personally to learn more. And he started working in a natural food store and then he started reading the books on the shelves in the natural food store. And eventually he came across natural hygiene. And uh, natural hygiene then became the philosophy that that uh, that then guided our careers in this whole arena. Uh, eventually, we found other people. We found John McDougall and then Colin Campbell and Caldwell Esselstyn and and these and these characters. So we we picked up you know heroes along the way, but uh, the beginning started with with that beginning from psychodietetics yeah. and then on to hygiene and then from hygiene we really haven't strayed that far. Yeah. Uh, from those basic early principles. All right. Uh, Alan actually talked about it uh, being part of the reason was about trying to uh, improve his basketball game. Was that... Uh... <laughs> you know, that may be true. Uh, he didn't tell me this at the time. Yeah, okay. So uh, I, I, I so wouldn't be surprised though. So he might have been just though. trying to get an edge over you without you knowing. That uh, wouldn't surprise <laughs> me at all. <laughs> Fair enough. So you're into... You're, you're a psychologist now. So how yeah. did that progression happen from... Uh, that's that's the part of you that I'm most interested in. Of course, yeah. I'm interested in nutrition, but this whole journey for me has been more about psychology than nutrition. So I'm interested in that from your point Yeah, I think psychology has started out my, with my frustration about girls, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, that's where uh, most things come uh, from, uh, isn't it? <laughs> almost everything. The, uh, so, yeah, this started out, I was probably 19 or 20, and I had become frustrated I was on my way to be an econ major and a lawyer just like my big sister and about halfway into this I just got I knew it wasn't me and so yep. I dropped out of school and I didn't know what I was going to do and I wound up uh, working for Alan Alan actually had a little sprout company Alan was going to school oh, okay. yeah he was going to go he was going to chiropractic college up in Oregon and he um, so he started a little sprout company that was successful and I came up to work in his sprout company, and I uh, delivered sprouts. I was going to say, you're not talking about like a small company, like as a metaphor, a sprout is a small company that's growing. No, it's no. actually growing sprouts. sprouts. Yeah, was, okay. I, I have to tell you, it was yeah. a beautiful operation right. that he put together, and the uh, and it, it worked, and it paid his way through school and paid wow. several employees, and he, he had a real growing concern. Yeah, and right. uh, so anyway, but while I was there doing nothing, watching my friend go on to get a doctorate and me spinning my wheels as a dropout, <laughs> um, I was, I was, uh, you know, searching for something. And uh, through some accidents, a book called The Psychology of Self-Esteem uh, by Nathaniel Brandon came into my possession. All right. And it for was the actually... people listening, I'm just... All these yes. books that we talk about, I'm going to try to find them and put links to them in the show notes so that you can find on the website. Sorry to interrupt you. Keep I, going. Yeah, so <laughs> anyway, I The Psychology of Self-Esteem was actually pretty hard to read. It was uh, complicated reasoning and, and um, somewhat intellectually, uh, maybe a little pretentious and, and high, a little bit high-handed. And, but I read it and I was trying to understand. And I can remember thinking, 
you know, if I could just grasp what this guy is saying and I could really make it, this, this feels like the kind of problems I'm really interested in helping people in since I was having these issues myself. And um, so then I, I went on, I actually met the author and joined a little therapy group that he had for a few weeks. And, and then I decided I wanted to go back to school to become a psychologist. And so yeah. uh, that's what happened. So I, then I returned to the university after a couple of years off and went uh, all the way through my, uh, then I was determined to, to become a doctorate in the field. And so that I went on to uh, get my doctorate in, in the field. And then from there, then a lot of things happened that took me a lot of different directions away from sort of conventional thinking. Yeah. All right. So, yes. so that uh, I read a little bit last night. I've read The Pleasure Trap before. That was when I was first introduced to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll get into my thoughts on The Pleasure Trap later. But uh, I... Before last night, all I knew of you was the stuff I've seen on from Red, sorry, in the Pleasure Trap, and the stuff I've seen on True North's website. Right. And I saw you speak last week, and uh, but then last night I decided to do a little bit more reading about you, and I found your website esteemdynamics.com. Right. Or it will be. It's dot org right now. org. Okay. Right. And uh, and I found the whole uh, idea of evolutionary psychology really, really fascinating and yes. interesting. So. Can we talk about that a little bit more? Uh, what, I, what is a I could talk forever so. about this. This, this is <laughs> my too. this is yeah. my life, and so the uh, there's no there's no greater joy and no no better purpose that I have than to explain to the world evolutionary psychology. Yeah, and so it turns out that the pleasure trap is just an important little sliver of yeah. an application of evolutionary psychology. But uh, for your listeners, let me sort of describe what this is, and it may seem obvious. Uh, to you hearing it for the first time, but actually if you're anywhere in psychology or you've had any exposure to conventional psychology, this yeah. is a revolution. Yeah, is, yeah. well, I yeah. have had a little bit of exposure. I, yes. I'm, I minored at university in psychology, so I do right. have a, a, obviously nowhere near what your background is, but I do have, you know, I studied Freud and right. all these other guys, and you, yeah, so I do have a little bit in it, and, and then I might as well explain the introduction. So yes. uh, early last year, I was doing my YouTube videos and I made one particular video called, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was about moderation, my thoughts on moderation and right. why I thought the idea of eating everything in moderation was stupid. Yeah. And after I made that, someone wrote to me and said, hey, you should read this book, The Pleasure Trap. So I got the book and of course, the first chapter I read was The Moderation Myth. Right. And that was, I was so happy when I read that because it made me... Uh, made me realize oh, these are th- here's two guys that are genuine experts in what they're talking about and it made me realize that i was on the right track with the way i was thinking about psychology so right so yeah that's the lead-in i guess to, yes. to what you've got to say about uh, the pleasure trap and yes yeah, anyway sorry yeah anyway yes uh so uh, what this is is the following concept yep. and that is that the uh, if you look at a giraffe the giraffe has a particular anatomical structure. So there's effectively a Gray's anatomy of the giraffe. So its kidneys in a certain place, its liver's in a certain place, its heart, its heart has to be unusual because it's a giraffe. It turns out giraffes have extraordinarily high blood pressure. Uh, and the right. reason why they do is because they have to have the heart pump that blood all the way up to that head. So, okay, it's yeah. a, so, they're, so e- each kind of creature has its own specific uh, issues that it has to deal with because of its anatomical structure. So uh, a giraffe faces different challenges, uh, essentially engineering challenges, than does a water snake. 
They've got a yeah. completely different set of problems. Yep. And each kind of creature has its own threats in the environment, and each of them has its own opportunities. So for a, gi- a giraffe, the opportunities are you know, eucalyptus leaves uh, up in the tree, and the, and the threats are going to be any predators that would come along, et cetera, and snake holes and things of that nature. Yep. So each kind of creature has its own what we're going to call adaptive problems. And if we look at its physical structure, what we're witnessing is the best design that, that natural selection came up with. So if it turned out that they were better off being a few inches taller, then they got a little bit taller. If it turned out that it, they were better off not getting any taller but having their legs get a little bit thicker and the knees changing a little bit because it's a little bit better designed for the landscape, then things would change. In other words, things shift and modify in a way that shapes the adaptive challenges of that genetic lineage of that species. Yeah. So that's why a giraffe looks like a giraffe yeah. and a water snake looks like a water snake and a gorilla looks like a gorilla. Yeah. So essentially the, the giraffe that was a little bit taller was more likely to reproduce and therefore have kids that were a little bit taller. Yes. And that's how it spreads through the population. That is exactly yeah. right. Yeah. In other words, the, uh, the, the characteristics of these organisms, um, part of their physical characteristics are genetic. Part of them are as a result of wear and tear. So one giraffe yeah. limps around, but it's not because it has... It's not going to pass on the limping to its son because yeah. it, it, unless it was a defect of its knee, if it got injured, it doesn't. You don't pass along injuries. Yeah. So the um, so yes, yeah, so the genetics uh, is basically explaining why the giraffe looks the way it does, and in this way, each giraffe has its or each kind of species has its own specified anatomy, structure, physiology, and something else that's very important to understand it has a brain and that brain matches its body and it's basically like a perfect glove out of an italian glove shop that fits perfectly for that hand so the the brain that is in a hippopotamus will not fit in a rhinoceros it won't do the right behaviors even though they're pretty similar and they're both big it's not the right set of behaviors and so each kind of brain is actually a, a device for managing the behavior of that type of organism. And that is going to be give rise to what we're going to call their nature. So a giraffe has giraffe nature, and rhinoceros has a rhinoceros nature, and the great white shark has great white shark nature. And what's fascinating is that in the 20th century, the dominant view of, of academic psychology is that there is no such thing as human nature. Yeah, that is okay. fascinating. Yeah. So they <laughs> they had a theory that is known as learning theory and then becomes known as social learning theory yep. or socialization. Uh, that is the dominant theory in, in, in psychology and the dominant theory in anthropology and in sociology. It's the notion that human beings are do not have a brain that is specialized as a human brain. They have a brain that is so naturally flexible and that it's just a big, complicated associationist computer that it can become anything. Okay, so in principle... You're already blowing my mind here, by the way. (laughs) So in principle on this theory, uh, even though they don't don't, uh, articulate it in this way, but this is actually the baseline theory of academic psychology, that you could become a giraffe. Okay? (laughs) All we would have to do is teach you to do giraffe things and then you would be like a giraffe. Yeah. And or you could become a lion or you could become a hippopotamus or a porpoise, okay? So in other words, the human brain is infinitely flexible 
and that it is independent of its biological mm. lineage. To that be is fair, though, having been a vegan for quite a while, I have met a lot of people who think they're lions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so anyway, the bottom line is this, that this is a this is a catastrophic mistake. And there's reasons why they made this mistake. And one of the reasons is that human beings have a do have a phenomenal capacity for learning. And because they can learn so much, they can learn Chanel number five. They can learn what a BMW is. They can learn and name so many details in the world that people forgot that there's an underlying human nature that cannot be changed. Yeah. So this is, and, and in fact, we are so close to that nature that our own nature is like water is to fish. Like they can't see it. They wouldn't know what you mean by water. Yeah. And human yeah. beings are so close to their own natural history. It comes so automatically to them that they don't even see it. And this is what uh, two of our greatest psychologists today, John Tooby and Lita Cosmides, uh, this is what they call instinct blindness. The human beings are so close to their own instincts that they don't see them. So let me show you what a few of our instincts are. Yep. And as soon as you start looking for human instincts, you'll find them everywhere. But if yeah. you're not looking for them, you'll <laughs> never find them. Okay? okay? And so academic psychology has not been looking for human instincts because they expressly didn't believe that they existed. So now watch. Okay. Yep. It's going to turn out that from this view, human beings evolved on the African savanna, and they evolved with an adapted psychology that is adapted to the savanna life in small hunter-gatherer groups. And so it's going to turn out that human beings like to look at a landscape, and they like to look at a landscape that's full of greenery because they like to see greenery because greenery indicates plant life and also animal life in the environment. They like to look sense. at yeah. They like to look at broadleaf trees more than they like to look at conifers, and that's because broad leaves indicate that there's more sunshine and warmth in the environment that's conducive to this particular primate. Okay. okay? Yeah, yeah. It's going to turn out that they like to look down on a scene. They like to actually have a gravitational advantage over predators and competitors. Yeah. They, uh, it turns out that if you look at paintings all over the world of landscapes in any art gallery in anybody's house in any office, you're going to see that the gravitational epicenter of the painting is below the level yeah. of the observer. Yeah. So see that yeah, painting right there? Definitely. We are slightly above the gravitational epicenter yeah. that you can see that we are looking from vantage of about 7 to 10 feet higher yeah, yeah. than the gravitational epicenter. Yeah. So this is going to be characteristic of every painting that you're going to see. Yeah, another one over there. Yeah, you're They're right. all the There's same. There's a few paintings in this room and that we're yes. looking down on the scene you in look all of them. down on yeah. the scene. Even yeah. if there's mountains in the background, the gravitational epicenter yeah. of the scene, you look down on the reason is is humans like to look down because of that gravitational and perspective advantage okay? yeah now, right it's going to also turn out that they like to look at uh water and they like to look at water because you're not a desert animal and you need water yeah. so that's why houses that look and overlook water people like it yeah. it's not that you just like the look of water you like the sound of it because it turns out that the, that water that's moving is less likely to have bacterial contamination. Yeah. You also and like there's to, a little fountain in the middle of True North, and I love yeah. sitting next to it and just listening to the trickle of the water. But there you sorry. go. <laughs> it's also true that we like to look at uh, grassland sort of landscape with intermittent trees. And yep. we don't like a tremendous amount of trees because you can't see through that jungle and there could be predators you can't see. You like to have intermittent trees as you look at a landscape and you don't want to be too far from these intermittent trees because you don't want to be caught without being able to scramble up a tree to survive. So it turns out that you can show people stylized pictures of environments or actual pictures of environments 
with trees that have different circumferences of the trunks as well as the branching structure, how high it is. Yep. And they will not like the look of a picture where the trunk is too wide or the branches branch out too high and they can't get up that tree. Yeah. Now, they can never tell you why they don't like that picture, but they like the picture where the trunks are such that they could climb them. Yeah, okay, right. yep. So they feel safer looking at that. So if you, if you actually discover what human beings like, they love trees because trees protected them from the African sun. They gave them a gravitational advantage over predators and competitors. They gave them an escape route from predators. They gave them a place to get perspective and actually see things. And they also potentially fed them. And they were a sign of water in the landscape. Yeah. Literally, trees are tremendous friends to humans. And so that's why if you go into attractive new homes, you don't like the look of it because it's, yeah. there's no trees there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. When you go into a neighborhood that's mature, you like it. Not only that, you don't like attractive homes where the roads are straight. You like it when they're curvy yeah. because the only thing in an adaptive landscape for a human that, it, that looks like a curved road is a riverbed. And a riverbed uh, is a okay. sign of water <laughs> was in this landscape. Yeah. When you actually think about how badly you don't like a landscape that is desert, or a landscape with no trees when it's completely flat, you recognize that if you're in the middle of that landscape, a predator could see you from 600 yards away and there'd be nowhere to hide. Yeah. So this is, this is an example. Of, this is just one example of human nature. And so if you were a gopher, you would like, you would like basement apartments more than you like penthouses. Yeah, yeah. So all of these things we start to see everywhere. The human nature is clearly part of the design and it's not something that any other theory of psychology ever considered. Yeah. Okay. This is totally in, fascinating. Right, to in, me, yeah. in theory, if you grew up in the middle of of uh, a concrete jungle like Los Angeles, you should have pictures of Los Angeles and concrete jungles and and Seven Elevens on your wall. You know, this is supposedly <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. what you associated with good feelings of going to Seven Eleven and eating the candy bar. Yeah. But that's not what anybody wants to look at. Everybody wants to look at these beautiful landscapes. They pay a fortune to get to golf courses and put their homes on a golf course so they can overlook what is, in fact, a stylized, beautiful environment uh, consistent with the African savanna. Yeah, and even yes. when you do see paintings or pictures of, of like Manhattan Island, you're yes. still always looking from that upward angle, aren't you? Yes, you're looking from yeah. the upward angle, and you're, there might be a few pictures where it shows you, you know, Tony's Italian restaurant. Yeah. It's sort of like a, a feeling of being there, yeah. but it's not beautiful. Yeah, yes. and I guess that's why all the apartments around Central Park are so expensive. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's yeah, precisely right. why. Yeah, that's, okay, amazing. Um, all right, I'm I'm struggling to come up with another no, question. No worries, because you blow my mind all day. Yeah, no, no, that's, yes. I, I was. If you've got more you want to talk about, I'm happy to just sit and listen. But sure. my next uh, interest was in how it relates to food for you, because yes. a big part of your work is in uh, talking about food, like at the conference we were at today and last yes. week. So, yeah. this is of course everything. So that you're going to now understand the problems that people have with food very easily when you realize that there's an innate human nature. And human nature is designed by nature to look for concentrations of sugar, fat, and salt in the landscape. It's designed to do that. Salt's an essential nutrient that you have to have uh, for the sodium-potassium pump and other biological functions. And then you're going to have uh, sugar and fat are going to be essential nutrient sources. You also like the taste of protein or more like texture, probably a protein. Yep. So essentially the three, three macronutrients uh, as well as an essential mineral like salt, 
these are critical for human survival. So essentially what's going to happen is that our, our natural history wired in a pleasure circuit between your tongue and your brain. Yeah. And it's basically says our job is to look for the highest concentration of these chemicals in the environment. So the foods that have the highest concentration of those chemicals are going to be the ones that we should be eating. Yeah. We see this same bias throughout nature. So it's going to turn out if you look at grizzly bears in, in Alaska where there's the salmon are running, you will find that they will grab a salmon and bite its head off and throw the rest of the, of the fish away. Oh, okay. And that's because the brains have the highest concentration of fat oh, yeah. in the salmon. Yeah. You will see uh, chimpanzees in the forest will strip a tree or, or a, uh, a shrub of, of uh, leaves the way a kid would wreck your shrub. And they would yeah. just, they, they'll, they'll take their fingers like this and just strip it. Yeah. And they'll have a whole stack of leaves in their fingers that way. Yeah. And then they'll eat the tips off of it. Oh, they'll okay. eat the tips because the, the new growth tips have the highest nutrient concentration. Yeah, right. And so then they'll throw the rest of the leaves away. Yeah. So you're going to find that throughout nature, animals triangulate. that They also have sensors in their tongue into the pleasure centers yeah. of their brain that that inform them of the highest nutrient concentration. Yeah. So oh, those grizzly bears that you're talking about, they're only looking for berries when the salmon are not there. Yes, yeah. that's great. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So it's going to turn out my, my buddy Howard Lyman, the mad cowboy, uh, yep. told me, listen to me talk on this once. And he said, came up to me and he said, you know, Doug, the cattle that I used to have, there's a certain kind of grass in Montana that is richer than the other grass. And when the cattle would go there, they'd eat, they would completely clean that grass off of the, of the uh, acreage before they'd ever touch the other grass. Yeah, right. So uh, anybody that's had a pet knows that that cat likes the fancy food that's all rich and syrupy rather than the dry, crunchy food. Yeah, yeah. So this is all about calories per unit of energy expended. Yeah. And these are essentially what a, what a living form is, uh, what life is, is it's the transmutation of caloric energy into DNA. Yeah, that's all fundamentally what life is. So that means what animals do is they are very strategically built in order to have incentive systems built into their wiring that guide them like a like a like a like a laser guided missile. They're yeah. actually they're directed towards getting the most bang for their buck that they can possibly get. This means that uh, this all works beautifully and and increases the likelihood of survival for all animals on earth with this strategy. The problem is, is when human genius comes along and makes pop tarts, chocolate yeah. shakes and French fries, yeah, yeah. which are completely unnatural. And of course they are extremely popular because they are artificially concentrated sources of these chemicals. And of course the organism doesn't know that this is self-destructive. Yeah. The instincts are saying, I'm doing exactly the right thing. Give me another box of the same stuff. Yeah, and that's the problem. It's interesting that you should say that because I've I've coached a few people now, very few. Yes. But uh, I've one of the things that I always tell the people, then they're usually obese people that want to lose weight, and uh, and one of the things I've always been telling them is that to not worry about things being broken. Your body's working perfectly, maybe better than everyone else because you're seeking these high calorie foods. Yes. And I, I tell them that. If we went back to hunter-gatherer times and people like me and the people that I coach found happened to find a donut tree in the savannah, yes. then 
we would be the best in the tribe at learning how to find more donut trees and learning how to cultivate them. And therefore, we would be the best at building up our fat stores and surviving droughts and therefore producing kids. Yes. And the problem is that the donut trees are always in season these days. So. Yes. <laughs> but is that an appropriate analogy, do That's you think? That's actually but, a fantastic yeah. analogy that I never thought of. So it's great. I never right. thought of the donut tree actually. Being, that's a <laughs> nice imagination. The right. uh, Yes, but you're, you're right on target, Andrew. It's okay, absolutely cool. right. right. Cool. Yes. Thank you. So uh, so now uh, you're working with food and psychology. And you, yes. And do you coach people and like as a psychologist help people that are overweight that need to change their relationship with food? Absolutely. Yeah. In other words, I coach all kinds of people, whether it's weight yeah. loss, whether it's yeah. eating disorders. Yeah. Um, certainly probably the biggest thing that goes on, um, it, it just so happens that I talk to a lot of people about food, but not everybody I, that I'm talking about, it's, it's about food. Yeah. Um, so I talk about romantic relationships. I talk about self-esteem yeah. at the heart of so many of things. Uh, even when it's, we're talking about relationships to food and we're talking about people that are trying to lose weight is the issue of self-esteem. Yeah. So self-esteem, um, ironically, uh, I come full circle all the way back to my roots when I was almost 40 years ago reading Nathaniel Brandon. Yeah. Uh, we're coming all the way back to the problems of self-esteem that I now understand more clearly than, than I did then and much more clearly than Brandon could have understood in 1969. Yeah. So we now have an understanding of, uh, of esteem processes and uh, that is extremely useful to try to help people feel much better about themselves uh, when when they're facing sort of repetitive struggles in these sort of areas that are very costly for them interpersonally and even costly for them just personally in terms of their health, yep. that one of the biggest costs that is involved in these problems of what I call the pleasure trap is the, the toll that it takes on people's self-esteem. And so that's a, a big thing that I wind up doing is sort of coaching people through the process of of building their own internal self-regard. Yeah, cool. Well, that's yes. really interesting because uh, for me, it wasn't something I expected. Uh, I was clinically depressed before I started my potato challenge. And yes. then after a couple of months, I noticed that things were much better. And that was yes. a surprise to me. And then I started learning about it. And lots of people sent, sent me to a book called Potatoes Not Prozac. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't heard of it. Okay. Well, no. I've got the book now, but I told Alan the other day as well, I just haven't had time to read it yet, yeah. but I was hoping you'd read it. And you'd no. <laughs> anyway, yes. um, back in time then to when you first started practicing psychology yes. and, uh, and working with people who needed help. Can you remember what uh, your first big success with a patient or do you call them a patient? Yes, a client. A client yes. Was uh, there, a, was there a, an, a success story early on that made you think, right, I've got this. This is, this is the thing that I want to do because that was awesome when this person told me how great this, their life is now. Yeah, I can remember one. Yeah. I can remember uh, what happened to me was it was actually uh, at my final year of grad school, I was off on internship. And just by chance, another book falls into my hand. And uh, it's a long story, but it had no business getting into my hands, but it did. And the book was called The Selfish Gene by the Oxford professor Richard Dawkins. Yeah. And, um, and I had heard of it vaguely. And I... And I o opened this thing up, and in the first page, he had my full attention. Yeah. And two pages in, I realized that this guy was confident, almost arrogant, that he actually knew the solution to a problem that I knew that psychology didn't know the answer to, 
which was incredible. And that was, uh, I had now, I was a few months short of a PhD from a major university and no one had ever explained to me that the motivation of organisms was to reproduce genes. This was a completely novel idea. Okay. So I had learned all the other theories and I'd learned sort of what people thought and it's all sort of muddy thinking and it doesn't match. And now I read two pages of a deep thinking evolutionary biologist who says quite clearly, this is exactly what it is. And I immediately recognized that he was right. Yeah. Okay. I had been searching. It was as if, you know, that feeling when you look into a kaleidoscope where suddenly the rocks shift and it springs clear. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That is exactly my brain had been fuzzy, 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 looking for a theory to understand human nature. And I desperately wanted to know one. And cognitive theories didn't fit everything. Psychodynamic theories didn't fit. Learning theories didn't fit. Nothing fit. Everything had contradictions and contradictory evidence all over the place. And so I, I, people would ask me, well, what's your orientation going to be? And I, I didn't know. I'd say, well, cognitive because it was sort of the yeah. most classy. But the truth of the matter is, uh, and I, I wasn't one of those dynamic people that they're, they're too creative and deep and troubled and awful. And yeah. you know what I'm saying? So I wasn't going to go there. And so I didn't know what to do and what to think. And when I read Dawkins, uh, it was the lights went on and the band started to play. And it was like, this is it. Yeah. And so it would be a few years as I would read. uh, I would read his three main works uh, very quickly in succession. I would read The Blind Watchmaker. And then I would read. uh, It wasn't probably for a couple of years later that I took on a very difficult book called The Extended Phenotype. Uh, when I read that was everything that he had written at that point, other than scientific papers, uh, that I wasn't even going to try to read. Yeah. And so book of his called the God delusion. Yes. That's that's exactly the, the, that was really interesting. Yes. A very interesting book, but this is, but the real key to his career is the selfish gene, the blind watchmaker and the extended phenotype. He, after that, he doesn't do anything that is particularly novel. It's iterations of the same things. And so, um, I, this is percolating in my brain for a few years as I began to work as a psychologist. And then at one moment, uh, I was supervising some, some people in, in the court system in Dallas. And a colleague of mine said, there's this, there's this, there's this uh, probation officer whose husband has dumped her and she's devastated. And I knew the girl. She's a very pretty yeah. girl. And, uh, and they said, would you come over and talk to her? She's a mess. And I thought, well, sure, of course I would. And I'm, I'm being called in on emergency. It's yeah, like yeah. every psychologist wants to hear this thing. Dr. Lyle, Dr. Lyle, re- report to emergency. You know what I mean? So, uh, so yeah. it's like I go over there and I sit down with her. And for the first time, um, this is my first time ever, I start to explain to a client that's in deep trouble the evolutionary process of how it is that her relationship works. And so yeah. I explain casual mating strategy versus pair bond strategy, et cetera, et cetera. This is all things that have been buzzing around in my head since I had read The Selfish Gene. And I, so I'm explaining to it, and I'm ex, as I explain the dynamics, what was fascinating, this, girl, this girl's self-esteem was naturally high, and she's naturally stable, and she's also very attractive. And by the end of an hour and a half, this gal was like, got it, understand, not a problem. Yeah. Really? Now, this is a wow. divorce. Yeah, yeah. Okay? This is, she's been married for three or four years, known this guy for six years. This is the guy that she was thinking she was going to have children with. She's 28 years old. Okay? Yeah. This, 
this would have been a full-fledged major crisis in any psychotherapy office in, yeah. in the world. Okay, And I sat down and talked like a scientist, stepping this woman through the logic of why it is that the husband made the decisions he was making, what was actually transpiring, what the whole dynamics were. And yeah. I said, this is how it is. And she said, no problem, and was done. <laughs> wow. Okay? That's amazing. And I checked, you know, two weeks later, she said, no, we're fine. We're friends. Not a problem. It's good. We're good to go. Wow. Okay? And a year later, she was having the time of her life dating somebody new. So the point is, is that that was my very first moment where I tested uh, this evolutionary logic. Yeah. By, and I found that the, that the nervous system is craving accuracy. Yeah. It wants to understand. And as soon as it understands and knows what it's dealing with, it's fine. Yeah. It's when it's confused that it's under distress. Yeah. Okay. And so it became clear to me that as I then continued on over the next few years, I could start to see, I knew that I was having successes that were not typical in the field. Yeah. And so today it's not even close. So today now we're 20 some years past that point. Uh, 25 years, God, where's the time gone? 25 yeah, yeah. years later yeah, and two or 3,000 patients later, uh, I understand that the that my understanding of evolutionary psychology has, of course, grown. Yeah, yeah. And my ability to manage the, the different kinds of problems that come to me is now much broader than it would have been then. That was my very first one yeah, that yeah. I tried. Yeah. I'd had other clients before. I was training in grad school, done what everybody told me to do. Yeah. Take out the little cognitive things, three column. What do you think? What do you feel? What's your behavior, et cetera. I've, I had certainly trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. I'd been introduced to dynamic therapy, et cetera. But this is, this is clearly a different animal because it's coming from a different perspective, which is human nature. Yeah. There's a human nature and the better you know human nature, the better you can understand its struggles and the roots of its suffering. And when you do, you can engineer uh, strategies that are much more successful than conventional strategies uh, for reasons that conventional thinkers would never even think of. Yeah. Yes. That's uh, That story about the divorce is really, really interesting to me because I, while you were talking about that, I was relating it to my experience with food. Yes. So this whole idea of the potatoes the idea was um that i wanted basically it's synonymous with a divorce i guess now that i've listened to that story i yes. can see that that i had a relationship with food that was unhealthy yes i was relying on food for enjoyment comfort emotional support and uh and I, because of that i was making bad food choices so the whole idea was to remove emotion from my choices and bring it all back to logic yes and it sounds like that's basically what you were trying to do with your patient there yes to help her see her relationship from a logical point of view and that's exactly what i was trying to do with myself and food to stop making decisions based on my emotions that i've had a bad day i need some chocolate cake to help me feel better it was i suddenly not suddenly but i worked hard on yes. it. and then i had this realization that all of the problems that i thought food was solving it was actually causing and once i could get that clarity of thought then I didn't have to worry about making bad choices anymore because it was just obvious to me what I should eat rather than having that, like the internal debate was gone then. Yes. So Fantastic. Yeah. So anyway, that was, a, while you were talking about that, I yes. was thinking the same thing. Of course, you bet. Hey, dogs come to visit. There you go. Dog right. nature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wants to know what's going yes, on. Yes, you bet, <laughs> you bet. All right. So uh, 
yeah, can we go on to the, the moderation myth? Then? Yes. Because like I said, that was that's my favorite chapter I've read in any book ever. Oh that was, my that goodness. Was great. I really it just solidified things in my mind when I read that chapter. That was the first chapter I read of the book. I didn't read it in order like right. you're supposed to. Right, just, right. <laughs> Very yeah. good. Yeah. The um yes, that was a interesting chapter because we had written the book and the the um the and actually an editor had come back and said there's kind of something missing and there's a there's some i don't know what it is and but it's right about here it's something doesn't follow yeah and and alan looked at this and said well we he kind of came up with the notion of that moderation was something that we needed to explain and attack as a concept and so then we came up with uh, the myths of moderation, which is that there are false assumptions uh, in, in, in the concept of the myth of moderation um, or the, the concept of moderation. Uh, they, the concept of moderation has a reason why it is such a powerful concept in general, and that is because it is so true with so many domains. So, so many domains of, of humans, uh, of human problem solving, the right move is to take a moderate position because the moderate position reduces the likelihood of extreme error. Yeah. Okay. And so as a result, you ge generally, you better have extraordinary evidence. If you're going to take an extraordinary position, you better be extremely confident and you better have your risks mitigated all over the place or you cannot afford to take an extreme position. Yeah. So the, uh, so we recognized that in terms of human nature, the right thing to do is sort of, computer check which means we check around what everybody else thinks and make sure we're somewhere near the middle yeah, yeah. and that that's actually uh, there's a dog, there's the dog doing dog nature yeah. the, <laughs> the um so this is this made makes complete sense and so this is why this is such a powerful argument against anything that looks as strange as the diet we would recommend yeah that everybody's doctor i just today and this i, I get this at least once a month, yeah. where I have some parent, wife, husband, uh, et cetera, usually a parent, uh, talking about how they've got a teenage child or an adult child who has an eating disorder, and the problem is is that the professionals that are talking to them are saying, listen, that vegan diet is part of your disease, Yeah. okay? And you are thinking very strangely, and we have to fix you and make you essentially more conventional in your thinking. Yeah. Now, the truth is, is that the person may well have, I wouldn't exactly call it a disease, I would call it, they, they, they've got some screwy circuits in their head uh, when they have eating disorders, yep. and they are interesting circuits that I could talk about another day. Yep. Um, it's not a disease process, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unusual circuit arising out of a, a juxtaposition between a natural obsessive compulsive disorder and the modern uh, hor horrendous social costs of people being fat. Yeah. That's how you wind up with an eating disorder. The uh, You couldn't have had an eating disorder 200 years ago because there wasn't a fascination with fat. Yeah. It's only a modern environment. In the same way, you couldn't have a hand-washing compulsion uh, uh, before, wash hands. Yeah. before the dawn of germ theory. Yeah, yeah. As soon okay. as you have the germ theory, then the obsessive people by nature start obsessing about okay. germs. Yeah. So in the modern environment, young women 
uh, and women in, in general, but young women in particular, obsess about fat. Why? Because if you're fat, you lose status and sexual attractiveness. So therefore, if they're hyperconscientious, by God, they're going to make sure that they're not going to be fat. And now we wind up with an eating disorder. Why? Because if you eat the conventional foods, you will wind up fat. Yeah, yeah. And so as a result, what do they do? They restrict like crazy. And now that that is, in fact, the genesis of eating disorders. Yeah. Now, so then they go to treatment, and what do they get? They're told, no, 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 you're... And then once in a while, the ones that I hear about are the ones that are very fastidious about eating very healthy food. Yeah. And then when they go to treatment, they're being told, oh, well, you're out of line. You need to learn to eat chocolate shakes and relax <laughs> and have a cheeseburger yeah, now yeah. and then. And, the, and of course, these people are you know, saying, no, that is absolutely untrue. And they're, they are digging in their heels and they won't move and everybody thinks they're crazy. Yeah. Truth is, they're not even the slightest bit crazy. And so I forget what your question is. I got lost. Oh, uh, we were just talking about the moderation, the myth of moderation. Myth of moderation. So, yeah, this yeah. is exactly right. So the point is, is that the uh, just because you're in an extreme position doesn't mean you're wrong. Yeah. Okay. And so it turns out that we knew, for, it was very clear to us that we are correct about diet. Yeah. Now we can we can argue with John McDougall over a little bit of salt, and we can argue with with. Uh, uh, Caldwell also stand about a little a, a calorie here and a calorie there. Yeah. Essie wants everybody choking down a bunch of kale. Yeah. And we're saying we don't really care. So yeah. there's slight disagreements of emphasis among those of us that treat people. Yeah. But the truth is we know we're right because we see sick people get well. Yeah. We see very sick people get very well. Yeah. And we do this in a way that every MD that ever comes to work for us always says, this is a miracle. I never see this happen in my practice. Yeah. And it's a joy for them to be a medical doctor and actually watch sick people get well. Yeah. And so we, of course, know we're on the right track. We have tremendous evidence that this is true. And so we know that our position isn't even the slightest bit strange. Yeah. Okay? yeah. We it's, just, fact, it's just that it's so much different to what the mainstream so much is. Different so than the mainstream. people go, oh, it's extreme. It's, it's the yeah. mainstream that got crazy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so we recognize that the mainstream is extreme that there is no diet that ro looks remotely like the mainstream diet anywhere in nature. Yeah. So we recognize that our diet, there could be variations on a, quote, natural diet that would be reasonable to debate and to look at. Yeah. Um, uh, people, the inclusion of meat or not inclusion of meat is a very interesting topic yeah. and open to empirical and theoretical discussion. But what is not open to discussion is chocolate shakes, donuts, ding-dongs, you know, yeah. licorice and Coca-Cola. Okay? Donut trees are not real. You're right, exactly. <laughs> and so we we know, and so this is this is where we begin the myths of moderation. That of course you would want to take a moderate position when you don't know any better and you don't have any evidence, and you better just check the village because the village is going to be the the house of wisdom, and that you're going to try to head to the middle. And so unfortunately, we have a world of extraordinary ignorance in the very highest levels of academia responsible for training medical doctors. Yeah. Okay, so there's an incredible disconnect. I remember one uh, young physician said to me, I have, have an enormous textbook on nutrition that I have to memorize an incredible amount of stuff. And I go through this entire thing, and yet nothing is talked about diet. Diet isn't yeah. even discussed. <laughs> now, they, they, they know a tremendous amount about the cell biology of what yeah. happens when you put vitamin K you know, in a system. But nobody ever says, well, then what on earth should human beings be eating? Yeah, yeah. That's not even in the book. <laughs> and so, of course, you know, there's this disconnect. And our position is our diet um, is incredibly reasonable. 
and uh, there's another thing that we're getting to here. But our diet is incredibly reasonable in the natural history, looking in the context of the natural history. And we also see something else, which is that the biological systems in human beings normalize. Yeah. They get out of pathological territory when you feed them this diet. Yeah. So we know that we're not being a bit unreasonable. The, the, the other issue that, that Alan has made a big deal of is the notion of um, what about a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Yeah. And this is where this gets interesting. Yeah, this is what, uh, what I've had a lot of feedback from. I surely a bit of chocolate cake once in a while is all right. Right. This is where, uh, and, and Alan and I, we part ways a little bit here. Yep. And uh, for interesting and different reasons than, than conventional reasons, Alan is very hardcore. So Alan's attitude is you freaking toe the line. You do everything right. Don't get one inch out of line because if you do, it's going to just be more difficult for you. And so there really isn't any place in Alan's playbook for anybody saying, let's give a little bit of wiggle room. Yeah. Okay. Now, I understand his thinking. And that thinking is actually accurate when it comes to the biology and psychology of the pleasure trap specifically. Yeah. So it is, in fact, easier to quit drinking altogether than it is to cut down to a couple shots of scotch twice a week. Yeah. If you're an alcoholic, you're better off with zero. Yeah. And so uh, Alan's position there is not assailable. Now, when I wrote uh, that chapter, my thinking seemed very logical to me. It seemed a little bit preachy, but it seemed clear and crisp and right. And I was perfectly happy with it, and I'm happy with it to this day. However, in the years since, um, I, I actually suspected a problem. And I wrote about this problem actually in the the end notes in the pleasure trap. I talked okay. about a phenomenon that I have termed the ego trap. And I'll talk about this in, in, the, in the book that I'm writing now that God knows when it'll be oh, done. Oh, good. I was going <laughs> to ask you later if Someday. you're going to write another okay. book because I but need I'm, another one. <laughs> yeah, I'm writing a book uh, that, is, that is going to, uh, uh, an important concept in the book is what I call the ego trap. Yeah. Now, the ego trap, people might start thinking about Doug Lyles, the trap guy. Like, you got the ego trap, the pleasure trap. What other yep. trap is there? No, these are the two traps. Yeah, okay. These are the two great motivational puzzles for human nature. They are different, okay? The, the pleasure trap is unnatural. It is not a natural trap. Yep. This is why it's so devastating. Because yeah. we are defenseless in the face of the pleasure yeah, trap. Yeah, we've not faced it throughout human history until really the last... 50, maybe 100, 100 years. years yeah. Right. So you're, you're talking about essentially supernormal stimuli. Uh, we, we've had it for 10,000 years, but not in the magnitude. Yeah. You now you have every chemical under the sun available to just about everybody in a way that can, that can hyperactivate the dopamine pathway or endorphin pathways. Yep. And so we, we've got a tremendous quantity of addicts uh, in one form or another. So this is a big problem, obviously. The, however, there is a secondary problem that can come about in a variety of contexts, but one of the contexts is in the pursuit of perfection around health. And so this is, um, this is what I call the ego trap, and let me describe it to you, and you will instantly see the pattern, and you will then see that this is a devastating pair of snakes that operate together, and they're very difficult to get it right. Okay? Yeah. The... Uh, human motivation is designed to try to earn esteem from other people. 
That's how we're built. Yeah. Okay. And so it's going to turn out that you try to earn esteem from uh, living up to or surpassing what other people's expectations are of you. So if you're a great tennis player and you're going out in the finals of Wimbledon and everybody expects you to win, then when you win, it's good because you've affirmed it, but you haven't gained. Yeah. Okay. And so if, if everybody expects that you're almost certainly not going to not going to win, then when you don't win, you haven't lost very much. But if you're not expected to win and you win, you have a tremendous gain. Yeah. And if you are expected to win and you don't win, you have a tremendous loss. Yeah. So it's going to turn out that the expectations that the world has of us are calibrated to what it is that they know about us. And so we're going to have those same kinds of expectations for ourselves. So what we have is we carry within us a set of calibrations as to what we think we're capable of accomplishing and what and that resonates with what the world probably thinks we're capable of accomplishing. Yeah. And when we do better than that, we get a pride of gaining status. And when we do worse than that, we lose status. So uh, an, uh, an example that you won't know about because it's Australian football, but last year, the Western Bulldogs, uh, they finished the season seventh or eighth on the ladder. And then in the finals, they went through and won the grand final, which is like the Super Bowl. Yes. And suddenly, everybody loved them. Yes. And that's because they came from a long way back and won and this, everybody went crazy and everybody's second best favorite team was the Bulldogs all of a sudden. Right. So, so exactly. that's what was happening there. Yes, yeah. correct. Okay. okay. And so now I want you to think about the following situation back on the Savannah. I want you to think of a young man who's 16 or 17 years old. He's just got on the edge of maybe being able to mate. And he's just big enough and strong enough. He's about ready to start to be a hunter. And so he goes out on his first hunt and he gets separated out. Oh, I, I lost a little bit of context. Everything about this guy is average. Average athleticism, average smarts, average clever. You know, everything about he looks he looks average. This guy's headed for an average mating career with a couple of average children. <laughs> like everything is going to yeah. be average, okay? Now, he goes out on this hunt, and he comes across a wildebeest with its foot stuck in a snake hole. And he takes a rock and knocks it over the head. And then he goes back about 40 feet and throws a spear into it. <laughs> then he drags it home and tells a big story. Yeah. Okay. So now there's a big feast and everybody's thinking, wow, you know, Thor over there, we thought that he was average, but looks like he's, you know, special. Yeah. So now to the, to the young women of the village, he's not looking like a five. He starts looking like a seven or an eight. Yeah. Okay. So now what's happening is he is now the expectations of the village are above the truth. Yeah. And this is extra esteem that he doesn't really have. He doesn't, hasn't really earned it, but he's got it. Yeah. Okay. So if we have that situation, what we're going to now find is that when it's time to go on the next hunt, it's time for him to sprain his ankle the day before. <laughs> but he will actually yeah. self-sabotage himself. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And he's designed to do this because if you self-sabotage, something happens and it doesn't transpire, you get to hang on to the status for longer. Yeah. Okay. So actually, this is fantastic because you literally find that the human being is wily enough to be engineered. He's engineered psychologically to self-destruct. Yeah. This okay? is this is hitting home for me. Oh, you bet. Yeah. Okay. Now, now we're going to keep talking because now we're going to bring it into the modern context. Yeah. So now we're in a little small town in the middle of Iowa, where they only have like 32 kids graduate from this high school every year. And so for the last five years, you know, they've had a few bright kids, but this year we got a real bright kid and every, he's been the brightest kid for years. And so everybody thinks that this kid's going to go to Harvard. 
So he's they've been talking about this since he was in the eighth grade. And so they're all expecting him to do phenomenal on his board scores because he's so much smarter than the other kids in the school, right? Now, this kid is, is soaking in this esteem. He always gets straight A's. His parents think he's going to go to the Harvard, and it all feels great. Now, except that he takes a practice test on the board scores and turns out he scores very high, very high, but not Harvard high. So he yeah. can tell that he is not Harvard material. Yeah. And he practices quietly when nobody can find out. And it turns out he doesn't improve that much. And by gosh, you know, he's he's going to be a great student at the state university, but he is not Harvard material. Yeah. And they will not let him in. Now, what this kid is very likely to do on the night before the boards is to get drunk in plain sight of everybody. Yeah. You see? Because yeah. this way they say, well, George, he could have gone to Harvard, but he got drunk, drunk the night before the SATs. Can't imagine why he did that. What, it, what an idiot because he's so brilliant. Okay? Yeah. This is how he holds on to the status is by self-destruction. Yeah, now, right. Now, so it's going to turn out that this is what I call the ego trap. The ego naturally wants to gain status through achievement, like our young hunter and like yeah. this guy. But it's going to turn out that if events transpire, that the, the village somehow gives him more status than he deserves, then he's put in a position where he cannot live up to expectations. And as a result, he will sabotage his own behavior by saying, by sabotaging in a way that they can say, he can say, look, you can't judge what I'm capable of because I didn't do what I'm capable yeah, yeah. of. Okay. And this was the threat that I would watch people get into uh, when Alan would put the bar too high for healthy living. Yeah, okay. So Alan would put the bar, he'd say, why don't you just do it to Alan? It's simple because he's unbelievably naturally self-disciplined. Yeah. So Alan, when he found this information, it was like child's play to him. Yeah. And so he, and it's so powerful and useful that his attitude is, look, just do it this way. It's the easiest way. Don't quit keep teasing yourself with the pleasure yeah. trap. Yeah. And so he sets the bar here. And the problem is, even though he's accurate, that it is the easiest way to do it in some total. Yeah. The problem is, is that it may not be doable for people. Yeah. Because there's too many challenges. People have too many different motivations, too much temptation. And basically, they just can't do it. Yeah. And so as a result, they quickly find out that they can't do it. And when they find out that they can't do it, but they're expected to do it, then they start to sabotage themselves. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now this is this is uh, this is what I call this is the root. This is the very interesting self-protective root of procrastination. Yeah. This is why an alcoholic. This is not talked about in drug drug and alcohol addiction. They we can talk. We they talk about the pleasure trap, the dopamine surge, yeah, yeah. all kinds of things, but they don't talk about the fact that the alcoholic is actually embarrassed of trying and failing. Yeah. And then, in fact, what they do is they procrastinate by saying... I get that all the time with uh, the people that write to me and say, they say, oh, I'm thinking about trying this potato thing. And I, I'm not here to say everyone should do it or whatever, but I always get people, oh, I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it. I say, why are you thinking about it instead of doing it? Yes. And they say, because I'm worried I'll fail. Yes. And so, yeah, sorry, this keep going. This is what's happening, yeah, okay? Yeah. So the, the, what's interesting is the following. If we were... So an, an example of this, so I started to find this out uh, you know, years ago, uh, 20 years ago, I was sniffing out this issue. And let me give you an example of how I fixed it. So um, if I had a kid, I, I've had this happen more than once, where I'd have some young person 
13 years old, come into the office with their mother, who is all upset because I hear on the phone that the kid is very, very smart, but he's flunking out, and the parents are worried that he's doing drugs or some terrible thing, okay? And so they come in, and uh, and dad doesn't come, even though he's supposed to come, because dad doesn't want to hear some psychologist tell him how to raise his son. So mom comes in, though, all animated and worried. And so uh, mom starts talking to me about how Jimmy's just so smart. He's so so creative. He's just brilliant. Well, actually, Dr. Lyle is a genius. You know what I mean? This is the sort of talk that comes out of a parent. Yeah. And he's a straight-A student. Well, the truth is the kid got straight A's once in the last three years. The kid is very bright. Yeah. But he's not a, quote, straight-A student. This yeah. is not falling off a log, and it's not a fait accompli. Yeah. Okay? So the kid is over-rewarded by his parents. His parents actually think that the right thing to do is to tell him, you can do incredible things. You can do anything. You can do incredible, 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 incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They think that this is helpful for the kid's self-esteem. They don't understand yeah, it's actually right. destructive. Okay? They don't actually understand that they're, they're actually causing a problem. Yeah. Now, the thing is what the kid does, the kid sees uh, that if he does his best, they're kind of disappointed. And even they'll say, just do your best. And then, yeah. well, if you fall, shoot for the stars. And if you, if you fall a little short, you'll get to the moon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is the motivational mentality of the average educated human. This yeah. is what you're going to hear in Tony Robbins. This is what you're going to hear in Zig Ziglar. This is what you're going to yeah. hear in motivational speaking. And it's actually bad. It yeah. actually doesn't work. And it's a psychologist that doesn't talk to big crowds to whip them up in a fury, but I talk <laughs> to individuals belly yeah, yeah. to belly that are struggling. I can tell you that the solution is completely different than any happy talk. The solution to that child's d dilemma is when I kick the mom out of the room and I tell the kid, hey, I know what's going on. You don't have to tell me. That kid will look at me like I'm a nut, like he doesn't know what's going on. Because you know what? The kid himself doesn't know what's yeah. going on. Okay. And I say, listen, the reason why you're having this problem is I know your school and I know the parents of the other kids in your school. And you might have been able to get A's before, but the best you're going to be able to do now is C's and B's. Because the truth of the matter is your, your classmates, their parents are doing their homework for them and they're doing their writing <laughs> projects for them. Yeah. And if your parents aren't doing that, they're not doing their fair share. And so, you know what, you can just kiss a goodbye because all you can get is C's and B's. And you know what, everything that your parents are promising you if you get A's, I'm going to get them to promise if you get a half C and half B average. And that's how we're going to aim this thing. And those kids look at me like I'm an idiot, <laughs> like I'm chopped liver that they're going to just take. Okay? Yeah. They're excited as they can't believe it. And then I bring the mom in and I explain to them about the man, the kid on the Savannah and getting the bar too high. Yeah. That their kid is actually self-destructing because he can't live up to expectations. Yeah. So that kid on the savannah, sorry yes. to interrupt yes, again, no but that takes me back again to something in my life. Yes. Of it. Uh, so I was an elite junior kayaker, marathon kayaker. Right? Yes. I, I won a couple of Australian championships. So I was quite good. But as I got older, I started putting on weight and I wasn't as fast. I wasn't in the top three anymore. I was more like getting into the top 10 and then I just stopped racing. Yes. And it made me think that, yeah, maybe maybe what was going on there was that uh, if I stop racing, then I can say I'm a really good kayaker because the last time I raced, I was really good. Right. But if I kept on racing, maybe I would have been coming 20th or then 30th, and then I couldn't say I'm really good anymore. Right. So, yeah, so you, there you go. You're bringing Abs up things from my past as exactly well. Exactly <laughs> how that worked. Yeah. Okay. And so the um, also, you can also start to see that you may not have the chops to do something extremely well and you may want to do other things. 
Yeah. So there's more than one thing going on, but probably a big reason was exactly what we're saying. Yeah, okay. well, for me, I definitely think I, I had it in me to do better, but yes. I just wasn't able to get my weight down to an appropriate level where I would my body would be allowed to perform at its best. Right, so, there you go. Anyway, back to the mom who's... Back to the mom. Yep. So I explained this to the mom. I explained that what I've now done is I've lowered the bar. So when I lower the bar and tell the kid he all he can get is half C's and half B's, the truth is now he's insulted. <laughs> it's completely different. Yeah, yeah. So instead of over flattering them and putting them in a trap where they can't reach expectations, I lower the ball low enough that they that they think that they're that I'm insulting them. That of course they can do much better, and of course in every case the kids wind up fired up and they can't wait to prove the idiot psychologist wrong, <laughs> and yeah. they come back with excellent grades. And I tell those parents, don't you dare say when those good grades come in. Look, I told you you could do this. Yeah, yeah. Tell them instead, Dr. Lyle says that sometimes kids get lucky. Okay? <laughs> yeah. That's where we want them. We want them right in that situation yeah. where they're still earning status by beating expectations. So I'm, okay. I take it the kid's not in the room while you're talking to no. them. Yeah, no. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I have a wife after wife saying, oh my God, I wish my husband were here. Because the truth is, is the natural parenting or friendship or psychotherapy is to say, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. It's yeah. all about this. Instead, it's better to say, I'm not sure you can do it. Yeah. Okay. If you say, well, I'm not sure you can do it. They're like, oh, <laughs> so if I really try and I fail, I probably haven't lost any status. But if I try and I succeed, I've definitely gained status because you weren't sure that I could do it. Yeah. So this is actually the place that we want people. Yeah. Okay? And so that this is why... The, uh, this is where moderation comes into this because when I set goals for people, I, even though I understand that the concept of mo moderation in general around this is fundamentally mistaken, the cleanest food is the best food, and the cleaner we are with the food, the less of the pleasure trap force we have because we're not teasing the circuits like an alcoholic with scotch. Yep. We know that this is the cleanest, shortest distance between the two points. However... If we set the goal there, we run into the problem of the ego trap. Yeah. Okay? And so instead, what I do is I set it down to what I call 80%. Yeah. So I set it there at 80% so that the person can look at this and say, I think that I can do that. Okay? Yeah. So I have what I call the starch targets. And the starch targets are starch, 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 fruit, salad, exercise. These yeah. are the six starch targets that we set up every day. We have a check sheet that goes for six times seven days or 42 search targets. Yep. Uh, I would email this so you can put it on your website. I don't have it on my website because I don't know how to do websites. You know what I mean? I don't, I'm not <laughs> yeah, organized, yeah. okay? Yeah. But this is what I've, I, I've seen your, uh, your, what are they called? The PowerPoint presentations. My very <laughs> professional PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, if you, if you haven't seen a presentation by Doug, it's, uh, it's every slide is uh, like, drawn on a whiteboard and then taking a photo is that how you do it i just do it right with a felt pen on a sheet yeah yes. yeah and then take but a photo of it it's quite quite entertaining actually yeah. it's very low tech stuff very low tech <laughs> so uh in fact we could whip one up now with this stuff that's on the desk yeah, yeah. The, uh, but anyway the notion is is that for a person to set a goal that they can actually feel in their gut that they could do that yep. they could probably do okay now we don't set it so low that it's not a challenge and we don't set it so low that it's not going to help us morph out of the pleasure trap. So 80% is no joke. It's not easy to get your life organized that you do things 80% correctly. It's not easy at all. 
And so when people do this, what I want them to do is to be checking these boxes. And essentially, as they run a record and they can see that it's happening, they have an internal audience, which is what I'm going to call the self-esteem mechanism, yeah. that is watching their behavior. And as they watch themselves produce a set, uh, a record, they their internal audience starts to say, you're not kidding around. You're actually doing a good job. Yeah. It doesn't do it, give it to you the first day, folks, and it doesn't give it to you the second day. But by about 10 days in, your internal audience starts to look at this and starts to say, this is not a fad for you. You are actually making changes. Yeah. And this rise of internal regard that comes is the, what you found from, yeah. from your journey. Yeah, yeah. And that what people don't know is they may be overweight, they may be sick, they may be miserable, and they may feel like their life is a wreck. But what you don't, and then you may feel that you have to get a fancy job because that's what your friends have done, or you have to get a fancy wife or husband because that's what your friends have done, or that you have to lose a bunch of weight and look great, and that's what your friends have done, and that's what fancy people have done. And that's what you're going to have to do in order to feel good about yourself. But yeah. you know what? That is an enormous mistake. The truth of the matter is you don't have to do any of those things because let me explain. This is not happy talk now. This is the truth about human nature. This is an instinct that resides inside of human nature. Yeah. That if you start to do something that is worthwhile diligently, okay, if you start making a move towards improving your health and your fitness and you are diligent, and I don't mean that you work tremendously hard at it all day, but I mean that you work hard at it for the parts of the day yeah. that it's important to do so. If you do this on a consistent basis, uh, and when I say consistent, I don't mean six months. I mean 10 days in a row. Yeah. If you go 10 days in a row, you have natural instincts that are watching you. They are, they are essentially, uh, they're, they're what in philosophy has gone by the name of consciousness or self-consciousness. The cognitive therapists have called it the internal critic. Okay. This is an internal mechanism that observes our behaviors. And so nobody else in the world has to be watching if you eat a, a jelly donut. But if you do, you feel disgusted with yourself. Yeah. Your internal audience saw you do it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, your internal audience, if you cheated on a test to get by, your internal audience knows that you cheated. Yeah. And uh, so this is your internal audience is watching and it is a pitiless judge. You do not have to impress it with your accomplishments, but you do need to impress it with your effort. Yeah. And that is what the internal audience cares about. The external world cares about results and you care about the external world. So yeah. your attention is focused on what will they think when they see me in a bathing suit? That is how we think. And we think that the only way to feel better about ourselves, if we're a woman that needs to drop 30 pounds, we think we're not going to feel better about ourselves until we lose the 30 pounds and George sees us in the bathing suit and says, wow, Sally, you look great. But it turns out that's not true. What we are missing in an important concept in psychology that is missed is the most important thing is how you feel about yourself. And that has less to do with the accomplishment and more to do with your diligence. Now, the accomplishment is important. Yeah. It's important that you see that there's progress being made so you know you're on the right track. But what you don't know is that in 10 days, you can feel unbelievably better about yourself long ahead of dropping any substantial yeah. weight where anybody says anything. Your internal audience can say, wow, Sally, this is no joke. You are really doing this. Yeah. And essentially, this is the self-esteem mechanism. Nathaniel Brennan said 50 years ago that self-esteem is the reputation you have with yourself. 
So of all the kinds of things that he said about this and all the, the fumbling that he did because he was, he was in an earlier time in psychology and he didn't have the tools that we have today. But that is one of the most succinct and important insights that he came out of that mind. Yeah. Self-esteem uh, is the reputation you have with yourself and you can change that reputation in a matter of days. You cannot really, change it in yeah. one day. You can't mm -hmm. change it in one day. So don't expect the first day to give you any big payoff, but it is an investment that will pay off much quicker than you would think. Yeah, I really, really relate to that because uh, I've, I've said plenty of times that uh, the first two weeks were hard. Yes. And uh, and by the end of that two weeks, I started to notice an improvement in my depression. Yes. And I started to feel like it was getting easier. Yes. Like it was a struggle to eat only potatoes for two weeks, but really it was pretty smooth sailing after that for the rest of the year. It wasn't right. that hard. Right. Was, but once I got through that period and also uh, another thing that I've said plenty of times is that, you know, I've you mentioned Tony Robbins before. I've spent plenty of times in the morning, like talking to myself in the mirror. You're great. You can do the, you, you can do anything you want and all, all of that yeah. sort of positive self-talk that people talk about all the time. And it never did anything for me. Right. The, the thing that really helped me with my depression is probably people have been helped by that self-talk before. But for me, it's all about action. Yes. As soon as I got through that two weeks and I'm like, I've really done something here. This is... Oh, I've done something I didn't I didn't think I would last two weeks, let alone a whole year. I wanted right. to try for the year, but I got through that and I was like, this is happening. I'm doing something. And, yes. it, and then I, that's what I started to think. Like, yeah, maybe this self-talk thing is just a load of crap. Maybe it it, we've just got to do things. If you want to be proud of yourself, then you have to do things that you're proud of. Yes, that, and, that is beautifully said. And that is exactly accurate. The truth is, is that you cannot talk yourself into feeling better about yourself. You must observe yourself improving in your actions in order for you to naturally start to think and feel better about yourself. Yeah. Your judgment of yourself is not subject to your PR campaign. Yeah. It is only subject to an honest evaluation of your effort, yeah. okay? And the beauty about this, folks, is that not only is that true, that the system itself has no choice. Yeah. In fact, if you earn it through diligent effort, your self-esteem will, in fact, rise. I guarantee it. Yeah. Because it's, in fact, the nature of the neurological mechanisms that are part of human nature. If you, in fact, earn this by digging what I call the grit mine, self-esteem is made through grit. It's made yeah. through making good choices and making them again, okay, and making them in the force of face of temptation to not do the effort. If you, in fact, go through the process and pay those prices, you will find an increasing internal audience that does not criticize you and does not talk you down. It is not an internal critic in the way that cognitive therapy believes it is. Uh, cognitive therapy teaches that you talk back to the internal critic in these ways. They are actually, even though some of their techniques are useful, they're fundamentally misconstruing the psychological architecture of human nature. Yeah. The truth of the matter is, is that the internal critic is not a critic. It's an audience. And that internal audience is impartial and it will watch you and it will start to shift what it says about you as it observes you change your pattern. Yeah. yeah that's, that's how it works. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, uh, that's another... Uh, yeah, you just you keep on hitting the mark with me here. <laughs> I'm yes. getting tingles down my spine listening to it. this. But yeah, this is great. So it sort of leads me on to another thing which I've been telling all the people that I work with in my SpudFit Challenge group and the very few people that I've coached is that 
stop looking at the scales for for um, confirmation of whether you're doing things right. For me, it's all everything is all about behavior. And if you need a measure of success, then your what you said about your starch goals and what I've been saying is, you know, if you if you get through a day of eating only potatoes or if you're eating whole food, plant based, whatever yes. it is that your diet, but if you get through the day, give yourself a tick. Yes. If you get through the week, give yourself a tick. Yes. And if you just repeat the positive behaviors over and over and over again, the results are going to take care of themselves. You don't need to worry about it. What you need to do is focus on getting the behaviors right over yes. and over. So this is yeah. this is exactly where what we're trying to do is we're trying to actually have people become Buddhists. Yeah. Because this is <laughs> yeah, Buddhist yeah. philosophy. Okay. Yeah. Buddhist philosophy is focus on the process, not the outcome. Yeah. Now the problem That's where it came from for me, actually, yes. from reading Buddhism. Yeah. Now the the, the 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 problem that I have with Buddhism is that it's a beautiful ideal, but humans are humans. Yeah. And humans seek competitive esteem feedback from other people. That's why we do it in the first place. Yeah. Now the fact is is that the Buddhist philosophy and their instruction here to focus on the process rather than the outcome yeah. is beautiful because the truth is that's exactly the right way to do this. Yeah. In other words, when I say the process, of what I mean is the little outcomes of the day. I'm talking about the things we don't set goals, folks, that you don't have control over. So the, you have control over whether we ate a starch and ate a salad and exercised. You have control over that. Yeah. You don't have control over whether you're going to lose 25 pounds by summer. You don't have control yeah, yeah. over that because you don't know your own physiology. You don't yeah. know what it's going to take. So why set it as a goal? Yeah. The correct goal, the way to set goals is to set goals of, over which you have complete control. Then we don't need anybody else's opinion and we don't need a breakout of nature. So we sit there like a Buddhist and we get lost in the process. Okay? Yep. And we find our self-esteem being strengthened and our internal self-regard better as we do the process well. Then, then, of course, because we are not animals without a higher consciousness that's looking around the corner, we cannot just become a, an animal lost in its process. We as human beings peek around the corner and want to see evidence that the process that we're doing is related to the outcome that we yeah, seek. Yeah. We can't stop this and we yeah. shouldn't, okay? Yeah. But we need to be patient, Yeah. okay? We need to be patient with ourselves, patient with outcomes, and the truth of the matter is we need to, to be following people that have knowledge and, and wisdom to actually lead us down the correct path. And the truth is this is the correct path. This is the right way to handle the food problems of, of, uh, of your own personal health and weight and fitness, These, this is the way we do it. Any of the variations that are close, whether it's Engine yeah. 2, whether it's a potato diet, whether it's McDougal, whether it's Allen's True North, you know, whether it's what John McDougal says, it doesn't make any difference. We're yeah. all like within 5% of each other. Yeah, and, and you can apply it to any area of life ab too. Absolutely. Like if you yeah. want to run a marathon, if you want to be a good runner, don't every day judge how fast you're running. Just did you get up and go for a run? If you did, then you're on the right track. That is exactly right. right. And so this, we we try to don't don't let our 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 wobbling towards the outcome worry about the process. Yeah. We just do the process, and we know quietly that as we start to see any incremental improvements, we just relax, continue to get lost in the process. It's what I call being myopic. Yeah. Don't look too far deep in the future. Just, just look to the next little section and know that it is completely legitimate and valid for you to be having your, 
your imagination peek out into the future and and oh, take yeah. a peek at the at the grand thing that we're trying to do. Of course that's true. You cannot talk that out of yourself. There's no way that you should, okay? Yep. But what we do want to do, what we do want to borrow from Eastern philosophy is as much as we can lose yourself in the, in the process. That is the best way to run this journey. Yeah. And I guess that sort of happened by accident for me because every other diet I'd, I'd ever done, my goal was, like you said, I wanted to lose weight. That was what it was all about. But right. And this one, it wasn't a diet because I wasn't trying to lose weight. I was just trying to change my relationship with food. So I yes. didn't have a weight loss goal. Instead, the goal was to go a year of eating only potatoes. Right. So right. I didn't care what the scale said. Of course, I was happy when I saw them going down. Yes. But my focus was get through the year of eating only potatoes. And whatever happens on the scales, that's just what happens. And Fantastic. So sort of, yeah. You're a poster child <laughs> for exactly what I'm trying well, to say. Yeah, that's, by accident anyway. No, that's, you know what? And you know the whole thing, that's beautiful. Yeah. Because this, when you see all these things line up, quote, by accident, we now can look back and see that, of course, these principles are absolutely a play. And yeah. it gives us great confidence that we have the right strategy. Yeah. Okay? So I'm very big on the concept that when we're trying to attack any goal, whether it's trying to do a good job opening a vegan restaurant or whether or not we want to become a fighter pilot. The right thing to do is the goals that we set, we set the right strategy. Okay. We set the right strategy. And the truth is if it's to become an Olympic rower, we set the right strategy as we vaguely are headed for something over here in, in the future. Yeah. We set the right strategy and we set the sub goals. And our job is to be myopically working towards those goals on a daily basis. Your job isn't to do something magnificent. It's to do your daily work. Yeah. And as we do this, we find out where it goes. And wherever it goes, this is the, the philosophy of the great American basketball coach, John Wooden, who said, success is the peace of mind that comes with knowing that you did your best job. Yeah. Okay? That is the peace of mind. Yeah. Okay? Beautiful. So it's not about winning of course you would love to win but the point is did you earn your self-esteem yeah that is the point self-esteem must be earned yeah you can't trick it you can't give it to somebody with a medal that they didn't deserve it yeah. doesn't matter if a million people cheer you and you didn't actually do the job that you know that you could have done yeah. okay the your internal audience is neither fair nor unfair, but it is pitiless. Yeah. It is pitiless. So, so, so an athlete who wins by taking drugs probably doesn't have great self-esteem. No, what they have yeah. is they have a haunting little problem in yeah. that they may get great esteem from the world. Yeah. They may get riches. They may get fame. They may get great heterosexual success, You know, whatever it is that comes with this victory. Yeah. But the bottom line is, is that they don't get self-esteem. Yeah. Guess what? your internal self won't give it to you. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It, it is it is a absolute, relentless, honest mechanism. Yeah. And it will give it to you what you deserve. Fascinating. Yes. <laughs> it's blowing my mind all the way. So we've probably got to wrap it up now. We've been going for an hour and 20 minutes. Yes. I've got through like a third of the uh, talking points that I had on jotted down on my pad here, but maybe we'll finish with one last thing. Uh, I, I This is obviously not, a mainstream topic that we're talking about. So what can we do to make this go more mainstream? You know, I don't, I'm not sure because I'm personally not that interested in that. 
Okay. The uh, yeah. I I'm You're focusing on the process. <laughs> I focus on the process. You know, I I've learned that what's important to me are the people that I personally have contact with. Yep. And that their struggles, even though they're they are personally convinced and they know what direction they want to go, that is a very hard battle to go. This is a this is a rare. Uh, this is an extremely difficult problem because we're not designed by nature to solve the pleasure trap. And when you couple the pleasure trap with the ego trap, you have an extraordinary combination of potential self-destruction. Yeah. Okay? So you have repetitive failure, repetitive attempts, then completely kicking over the table and quitting the whole thing. You see this whole repetitive nightmare in the histories of everybody that you're ever going to talk to about these problems. Yeah. So the my job uh, is to... The person that's in front of me or the people that are listening to me, my job is to give them the very best guidance, the very best pathway to success that I can. I'm not worried about the whole world. I'm worried about the people in front of me. Yeah. Okay? Collectively, in general, yeah. good ideas drive bad ideas away. Yeah. And so these are good ideas that I've seen in my short life. I have seen these ideas become much more broadly appreciated. Yeah. The... Um, they are, we actually are asked to speak to much bigger audiences than we ever were before 30 years ago. We are now not wackos. We are actually respected. And in fact, even the scientific community finds us a little bit intimidating. You know what I mean? 30 <laughs> yeah. years ago, we were a joke. Now we're not a joke. We're actually sort of the gold standard that everybody's worried that, that we're going to cannibalize their treatment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so the world is changing. And long after I'm gone, it'll still be changing in this direction. And so I'm not, I'm not worried about rushing it. I'm worried about uh, doing as good a job as I can with the people within the reach of my voice. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, I couldn't be happier with, uh, with this discussion. It yes. blown my mind. And as I say to all of my guests, this, this podcast for me is about uh, trying to talk to people that can help me to improve myself. So... There's no doubt that this conversation can uh, can help me to continue to improve myself as a person. So thanks so much for sharing your uh, amazing knowledge with me and with my listeners. And uh, I'll, I'll have to try to get you on again sometime so I can get through the rest of these talking points. <laughs> a- anytime, Andrew. It's a great pleasure. All right. Thank you very much. You bet. And spot up. And let's hug it out. <laughs> enjoy that i like i said i hope you enjoy it as much as i did uh that was a real treat for me um and again really uh changed the way i look at the world and uh yeah it's uh it's just very interesting so uh, i hope uh, you enjoyed it. I hope you found some things that you from that that you can implement in your own lives. Maybe you can even help your kids, help help you be a better parent. I don't know. I, I just really, really loved that conversation. I love Doug's sense of humor and his enthusiasm. And uh, yeah, what a guy. So go to Esteem Dynamics, his website, Esteem Dynamics, and check him out at True North and get the book, The Pleasure Trap. Uh, go if you want to... Uh, go more in depth in any of the things we talked about go to my website www.spudfit.com and uh, and go to the podcast page with Doug Lyle and there'll be notes in there and links so that you can uh, take your education a bit further and again 
If you like what I'm doing, then please share it. Please subscribe on iTunes. Leave me a nice review and share with your friends. Tell people about this and help me out. Uh, again, you can take the challenge. If you want to do your own SpudFit challenge, you can go to spudfit.com and click on the Take the Challenge tab and you can join up and get some guidance with me. And you can also buy the book if you like, the DIY SpudFit Challenge, a how-to guide to doing your own SpudFit Challenge, available on Amazon and through my website. Uh, and also, lastly, go to thedaquery.com and get yourself the world's comfiest works of art uh, made from organic cotton and bamboo, hand screen printed right here in Australia and designed in Australia. And um, yeah, you can't get better tracky ducks. Winter's coming, folks. All right. Thanks, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that. Uh, it's been a pleasure and a privilege. Spud up. <laughs>